I'm Matthew McCabe. Welcome to Miracle Voices. Each episode, we will be delving into stories of forgiveness, healing, and transformation that have come about from integrating the principles of the book, A Course in Miracles. If you want to learn more about A Course in Miracles, visit www.acim.org. If you'd like to visit the Miracle Voices site, please go to www.miraclevoices.org. If you feel inspired to make a love offering, please visit us at miraclevoices.org forward slash donate. All donations go support the work of the Foundation for Inner Peace, the publisher of A Course in Miracles. Now here's your program. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Miracle Voices. I am pleased to welcome my co-host, Judy Scutch-Whitson, to the show. How are you doing, Judy? I'm doing really well today, Matthew. I'm so glad we're back together again. Me too. And also our guest today, Ronnie Whitson. Hi, Ronnie. Hi, Matt. Hi, Judy. Hello. You know, you guys immediately, or you girls, both have the same last name. Everybody's dying to know, is this Judy's sister? Are you related? No, we're not. Not, not, not in, uh, not by blood, but by love. Okay. Okay. And the more I learn about, uh, Ronnie's role here, I can't help but think that we're going to have to call this episode uh, Connecting the Dots or 2020 Hindsight or something like that, because it's so clear Ronnie's role uh, with the course uh, looking backward as you both explain it. Um, But at times, it was probably difficult to see that when you were living in it and looking forward, I imagine. Is that right? Yes, I never had any idea where my life was heading. And it isn't even, it's, it's only when you look back, when you realize that all those thoughts are what led you to where you are right now. And mm-hmm. as, you, as you live longer, right, Judy? Right. The, those thoughts get more and more and more. But uh, they, they started and then they just continued on, 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 you know, the incredible journey that both Judy and I have had. Judy more than me, but um, I've been I've been fortunate enough to to join along the way. How long ago did this all happen to you? Two years, five years, ten years? <laughs> you mean the actual beginning? Or I mean when you were born. Oh, when I was born. That's more than uh, that's a lot of years ago. Um, well, you just had a birthday. I just had a birthday, and. It it is. I'm seven years behind you. Okay, I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta start answering my age that way. That's right. I'm ninety. Everybody, you figure it out. (laughs) Do do the math. Last week I was eighty-two. This week I'm eighty-three. So uh, that's that's. That's a long way back to you know to remember all the steps that that leads you along your lifeline. So um, I mentioned it because so many people think all of the things that people do that they don't know well happen by some kind of magic, or it just happens and it doesn't really impress them. But today, since we're going to be talking about your role with the Foundation for Inner Peace. It's very clear it didn't happen by magic, but was guided by the Holy Spirit, and that you fit right into the plan that was given to us so that we were all chose identically and for 
different roles, but for the same reason, to accept the atonement for ourselves, to practice the course, and to learn what it was saying. We must have asked at some level, I think we all asked, and so therefore we're here right now. But uh, you weren't born in this country, that we know. No, I was born in South Africa. I came to this country when I was, I guess I was 20. So um, most of my life was uh, spent in South Africa. And that's where I met. I met my husband, Ivor, when we were both in high school. And he left South Africa to go play play, uh, soccer in London. And I followed him. And then he left London to to go to, to visit Canada. He arrived there. I think he says he had $20 in his pocket. And he got a job working in, in a uh, uranium mine in uranium mine in northern Canada. And I followed him again. And we were married in Elliott Lake, which is a small uranium mining area. And we were married in the basement. The, the, the minister's house had an unfinished basement. And we were married in the basement because no church had been built yet. So that's, that's my beginnings. And from, from then, I was fortunate enough we moved to, to Toronto where I started modeling and an angel named Lillian used to come up from from New York uh, on weekends. And she would work with different studios in Toronto. And she she managed to get me a uh, contract with her studio in New York. And I was, I think it was, I was to work 16 hours a week, four hours, for four days, and the contract was for for um, four weeks. So I would go down on a I'd go down on a Monday or not Sunday night, and fly back to Toronto on Friday, and that that led me both both Ivor and I to move down to New York. Okay, was the contract for uranium? The, the contract. That, that Lillian got for me? Yeah, the angel that came to you. What was the contract you signed? Oh, sorry. Lillian worked as a, as a um, stylist for a, a photographic studio in Manhattan. So she, the contract with, that she got for me was to work for the, uh, the uh, photographic um, studio. In, in New York. So that, that was the beginning of my modeling in New York. So you went from South Africa to England to Canada, where I was working the uranium, to New York. It was a hard rock miner. To New York to become a model, a model. And you won't say it, Ronnie. I know you'll never say it, but Ronnie was a top fashion model, what we called a cover girl back in our days. Right. That's that sounds a lot better than what it was, but it, it was it was a lot of fun. And um, so this is a glamorous lifestyle. We have a footballer, 
and the model. <laughs> and now they're coming down to New York City. And what, what, has, what happened then? Well, after modeling for a number of years, um, I didn't know what I would do after modeling was, was over because as you age, you, you, know, you stop working. I, w- I hadn't stopped yet, but um, Ivor suggested to me that the way my mind works, I might be interest, interested in uh, computers. And it was a good time. Modeling was slow in the summer, so I, I agreed with him. And I went and took a, uh, a class in uh, a modeling language called BAL. And the, uh, the class was held on Times Square, which was kind of a strange place to be going for, for, for um, computer lessons. But that was the beginning of my, my, my move from my modeling life into my computer life. What were computers like then, Ron? They were huge. I mean, they would fill city blocks. You, you would walk into the um, computer room of Time Life and you'd see um, what seems like almost, which had to be about 100 or more um, disk drives, which were big, you know, in big like four-by-four containers. And they'd be stretched, they'd stretch right across the floor of um, of the, the the computer room, and the computer its computer room itself had to be specially um, air conditioned. Had to have a raised floor so that all the all the cabling could fit underneath. Um, I mean, what fits on our desk, well, not even on our desks, in our hands today, would take up a whole city block. You know, so. That is so extraordinary to think of that. And I know most people um, sharing this podcast with us today mm. are a good bit younger than we are and don't even think about when computers took up a whole city street. Right. And here they go around with the smaller, the nanos and the cell phones and the iPods. <laughs> and that's a life that is lived in our hands and in our pocket. There, he had to go through all kinds of strange doors and passes and things to get into what looked like a mile city block just to go to your desk to do your work. Uh, that in itself is incredible. The reason right. I'm stressing it is because the work that you were getting into at that time, and so conveniently and wisely and presciently studying, um, was of course the wave of the future was going to make today possible, was going to allow us to have A Course in Miracles in 28 languages around the world and allow us to have a WE edition, a web edition, where with one click, we get the whole course, we can search it, and we could also be getting in all the languages. It it just boggles the mind how far you've come and every step along the way you were there. So tell us a little bit more about the progression. Well, it all my involvement working for the foundation started with you. One day you handed me a stack full of diskettes. They were five-inch diskettes that had very little data on them. And you, you handed me this stack without any expectations or any directions. Uh, 
just kind of handed it over to me. And I took it home and then uh, picked up, I had the, I had the three blue books. So I picked up one of the three, that one of the three books and I started look, checking the data on the disc against the printed, the then printed course. And I found the digital copy was filled with errors. It, it was really, whoever had key, keyed it in had done a, an amazing service, but they really weren't very accurate. So I found myself proofreading that the, all three books, and I went, through, I went through them about three or four times. And as I was proofreading, I would be proofreading with one side of my mind, checking that the words were right. And then I would switch over to the other side where I would be looking at the beauty of the words and that I would go on page after page. And then I would say, oh, God, i got to go back because I haven't been proofreading. Because as you're reading and listening to the beauty, the message in the course, you forget your, your mind isn't checking, checking um, <laughs> accuracy. So did, I ever, did I ever tell you how it came to be even put on discs? My I husband, never knew that story. And my husband, Bill Woodson, uh, who had been a military man for 23 years and was quite used to things that come up quickly and become all of a sudden part of our culture, uh, first noticed discs. I'll call them discs. I don't know what else to call them. I think in his conversations with you, he knew all about computers, mains, mainframe particularly. Yeah. Um, and he saw an ad in Palo Alto newspaper, and it said that a woman was willing to type up your print copy and put it on discs. And I said to him, look, here's an ad about discs. Does this mean anything? He said, let's call her. And he called her up and she said, that's exactly what she did. It was the first translation from print to put onto discs so they could be working with the next, hopefully with the next, um, I guess, generation of computers. In any event, she was called Miracle Typing. <laughs> miracle typing. And that's the reason I found her. I saw the word miracle. I stopped reading and we got her right away. <laughs> that is, I have never heard that story that fills in, fills in a blank. Like how did Judy have those discs in her hand? And then why did she hand it to me? But now we know it was, was with, well, it was you starting seeing, seeing the word miracles. And so that, that was one of the dots, Matt, which we just added another dot to our story. Yes. Yeah. So you have this like latent savant computer skills that you weren't really aware of. You're like an archaeologist with your little paintbrush dusting away your skills. You're, you're finding more and more computer skills that are underneath the surface. And it leads to it leads to more discoveries and what you move forward with, with Centerlink. Can you tell us about that? Well, <clears throat> Wood first and then very fast followed by Ivor had this idea and Judy, please correct me because you know more about Wood's, Wood's dream than, than I do, even though I've heard it, but he wanted, 
he wanted to build a database of all the books, the, the books um, connected to mind, body, and spirit that had ever been published. And he saw, he saw the possibility of computers being able to be used. Uh, you, know, you set up a database with all these books, and then once you have the database, then people could access and do searches and do what they do today. And, but this was really before, before this all happened. Databases were in their infancy, although there were quite a few around. But um, he and I were then got together and decided to set up a, a company which was named Centrelink. And Centrelink was set up with specifically to set up a database of... of but it was all. interesting then, Ron, in the database idea that mm. with that I was going to say came to it. He was another one of us who was given his role very carefully mm. and very, very well spelled out from even though we didn't know what it was. <laughs> Um, he saw the course as the centerpiece of a huge database right. with all sorts of metaphysical books and and all sorts of um, uh, psychoneuroimmunology, all the different fields he had, he felt connected to the mind and therefore led to the spirit. And he thought it'd be wonderful to put together a company building a database like that, which of course no one knew how to do really. And uh, he and I were, may have been the first ones we knew about who did anything like that. And so they, the Whitson Knott brothers became like the Whitson brothers. That's right. <laughs> we should have named it the Whitson brothers, not Centering. <laughs> very, very clearly they were meant to be together, just as Ronnie and I were meant to be together. We were the Whitsons by marriage. That's right. <laughs> we were still part of the Whitsons. And we worked together very closely. Therefore, they saw and met our friends as we met their friends and family. And a lot of our friends, of course, were new course people. And of course, amongst them were Ken and Helen, Ken Wapnick, Helen Shuckman, yeah. the scribes of the course. These were all the early days of the course. We all had ideas like this because we were sort of left on our lo alone for a little, not that we weren't told exactly how to publish the course and what to do with it, but we always had our minds were still wandering in all sorts of other directions. And um, I realized that was our coming together time when we we saw that it was for much, much more than we thought. And then I think your next step, correct me if I'm wrong, was getting to know Ken Wapnick even better and what resulted from that. I tried the just one more thing about about which I think his dream was what helped his dream became a reality because everything he dreamt of started taking place. You know, being in, being involved with Ivor, who at that time headed up a public a major publishing company in Manhattan, and this ex model. <laughs> who, you know, by, for some reason had some computer knowledge and everything you had in California that was already set up, but it, and it, it all kind of started coming together. His, his big 
his big dream. So, and and Ken was, of course, he was a major part of this. And um, I started working with him. You set up a meeting between Ken that that Ivor and I should meet uh, Ken and Gloria because they lived very close to us over here. And um, at first, when we visited them, they they knew very little about computers. It had just it had just kind of entered their lives, but they they weren't totally trustful of what what the future could be with computers. And but I remember standing once they stopped, they, they moved from from close to us, to, to Roscoe, and I think that opened. That's where Ken's computerese knowledge grew, and he, he saw how it could be used in, in, his, in his work. And then one day I was standing with him, and he said to me, he asked whether I would do a concordance. He said he would like to have a concordance. I think he put it that way. And would I be be able to do it? I had no idea what a concordance was. It was a word that sounded very much like dictionary to me. But um, I found myself saying, yes, I would do the concordance, which sounded like a, a big enough challenge. And then he kept quiet for a little while and he said, oh, and before you do a concordance, you'll have to number all the um, the sections, the subsections, the chapters and the sentences in the course. And I, I remember I, I I was I remember thinking this is impossible because at that point there was no there was none of the software that's available today that would allow you to do easily. But I found myself saying that I would do that. And that's what began for me a seven-year journey doing the concordance. When I talked to Rosemary, who worked with Ken, um, she said it took five years, but really it took two years for me to figure out the technical way of how this could be done. And then Rosemary and Ken became more involved as the content had to be looked at and changes made. And, and um, they, they weren't really part of the struggle that I had for two years to figure things out. I mean, in a concordance, and Matt, just for you, for, for, for you to, uh, to answer the question you had earlier was, in a concordance, you have every word in the um, book is is listed and then what you have to do and this was a big struggle was you list the word and then on either side of the word on both on both sides you have the word in context so you would have say 20 characters or 25 characters to the left of that word and then 25 characters to the right which sounds very easy except when you realize that if you go to the left of the word, you might be at the 
end at the beginning of a sentence and then you would go into the end of the previous sentence, which wouldn't make sense. So you had to come up with a way to get the relevant characters on both sides. And as always happens with all the work I've ever done with, with the course, is somebody comes up who would work with you and, and resolve a, 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 a challenge. And somebody, and I, I don't have his name, um, Dale, I don't remember his last name, but somehow I met Dale online. I don't know if he sent an email. I don't know how he came to, to me. But he, he was able to do the programming, and we figured out you have to use a punctuation. Um, you have to look at you, – you have to go to the left, count the characters until you hit, say, a comma. You stop. You go to the right, hit until you hit another comma. You stop again. Then you go on the other side, and you go and maybe – you're lucky enough you hit a period so you know you've ended a sentence, the earlier sentence, and you stop completely and then do all it. Bring all the other characters from the right. I mean, that was a mind-boggling thing, and I had no idea how to do it, and Dale did it. I mean, so even, a, even something as complex as that, someone appeared, an angel appeared, a waiting yeah. course angel appeared to help you along and help you do it. Well, Ronnie, those people who have indeed uh, owned and used the concordance, and they'd be the same kind of people who would use a concordance, say, for Shakespeare, or maybe yeah. they'd use a concordance for biblical study. Things are that that rich in material and that important to have concordances to them. Not everything has its own concordance, not necessary, thank goodness. But um, I wondered when you and Ken and the group were doing that, do we really need a concordance taking Ronnie away from seven years of work with us? Well, that wasn't true. You were doing work with us at the same time. Um, it turned out to be extremely important. And uh, while reading the concordance and doing the concordance and all the other work, I imagined you started to get an idea of what the course was talking about. It it. It burned itself into my mind. It, 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 I often think I've learned the course not by study, as so many people have. I've learned it by osmosis. It's just something that happened to me along the way. It's, it's all those times when I would proofread and I'd get lost. My thoughts would just take me elsewhere and I would be reading the beauty and the message. And then I'd go back and do my job, do the proofreading or the or the um, typesetting or what else. So it's 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 been a it's been a long journey of learning the course. And I said to my daughter that I learned, I came in through the back door. She says, "Mom, don't say back door, say side door." Back door doesn't sound good, <laughs> okay? So I really well, you may think it was a side door or a back door. Yeah. I think you came in from above. Yeah. I love, I love the idea that different people learn the course in different ways, and yours was one of the most unique ways I heard about, and I didn't even know about it. 
this sounds strange because I've known Ronnie for over almost 40 years. I didn't even know that Ronnie didn't even think that she ever studied the course. I didn't study the course. You've been through it more than any other person. <laughs> Helen, how could you not learn the course? I didn't think of it as learning, you said. I thought of just going along and doing my job. Well, your job was doing that too. And it was very charming and uh had a lot of insouciance in it, which made me realize um, what an enormous job you have done with us, the Foundation for the Peace, and how uh, grateful we all were to love you and to have you with us, because never did you think that you knew so much more than anyone else. You always felt you knew less. And it wasn't true at all. All the translations and everything that goes to print, Ronnie had to do with. Can you imagine from the very beginning, all the print was Ronnie was involved. Um, I have a question for you now, unless you want to add some other things, because it is, after all, a podcast about forgiveness. And I was wondering, uh, do you have anything to tell us in what way your personal life changed through, let's not say the practice of the course, let's say through the osmosis of the church. <laughs> right. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges I had uh, grow, both growing up and, and in later years was my father. He, he was a, um, I don't know if you want to say a, well, I don't have to use an adjective. I just say he was an alcoholic. And it affected me tremendously as I was growing up. And not only did it affect me, but I saw it affecting my mother, who was the sweetest, kindest person on earth. And to see what she was put through because of his alcoholism um, really made it tremendous impact on me. I didn't realize how angry I was at him uh, until really until he had died because then I thought I would think of him with love and everything that I thought I felt for him. But I found that it was mixed up with a lot of anger and disappointment. And I didn't, if, if I grew up with an alcoholic father today, I would probably know more about alcoholism being a disease and be more understanding as I went through the daily, um, you know, waking up um, from, from early morning, you know, he, he would start drinking before he got out of bed, I think. But um, I think if I had more of more knowledge about alcoholism, I would have been I would have thought of him kinder growing up. And it was only if I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't, I didn't recognize that he had a disease that, um, and that he needed to be loved and not to be hated for what he was doing. So what, what I found, it actually was in a conversation with you, Judy, when I one day said how much I hated the fact that I thought of my father with anger and not with love. 
and you gave me a good talk on forgiveness, which I always remember. But in, in addition to the talk you gave me, I watched you over the years with I don't know how many people who, who gave you every reason to not forgive. I mean, they, things were done and said to you, especially during the, the, that, those horrible years of the, the, uh, when the course was, you know, when, when litigation was going on. So much was said and done in those years. And I remember you got email and com, com, um, comments on, the, on the, the internet were made. And not once, not once, not once did you ever respond with anger. You, you just absorbed what was happening, accepted it, and, and forgave. Um, and I know you... You worked at that forgiveness. It's not as though you just sat there and said, oh, I'll forgive everybody. They can do and say what they want. Every time there was a need for you to forgive somebody, you worked at it. It might not have worked the first time you tried. And I know some, some challenges took you longer and probably some, maybe some still, maybe you're still working on some. I, I, I'm not sure. But watching your, you as an example of, you were forgiveness embodied. I mean, it, 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 it might sound strange, but I learned as much from you as I did from reading A Course in Miracles. It's, it's, it's just who you are, and you spread that feeling of forgiveness in everything you do. So It's lovely. For you to say that, Ronnie, and it's very delightful to hear because I know we all are each other's helpers. Yeah. We are the mighty companions that walk along, helping each other over the way when we ourselves are just learning how and have plenty to forgive. Um, but I think once I mentioned to you that Bill Thetford's favorite lesson was forgiveness is the key to happiness. And you said, why don't you record it? And Bill was still alive, and it turned into a, 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 a DVD that we distribute with Bill's voice on it. And his voice was quite, quite soothing, delightful, and um, calm. And so hearing from him, forgiveness is the key to happiness. And that lesson always helps me even now when I have to remember that I have forgotten to forgive. We're always in the forgiveness mode and spirit because that is the way home. But in ego, we managed to block it out a bit. And you had said something about how you absolutely hated your father when you were younger and you were glad to get away from home at a young age to avoid what was going on in the family. And yet when I see the life that has gone by and recognize that for many years, both your parents you brought from South Africa to New York to live with you and that you took care of them. And how did you feel about him when he died? Um, I have to say that even while I hated 
my father's alcoholism all through life from being, I'm, I'm sure from the first time I realized that he was not always the same person. But even though I hated that side of him, he was, I loved him. I mean, and that's, I don't mean I love just, um, just saying, it, saying the word, but I really, really loved my father and hated him more because of his alcoholism, which is a, which is a strange way of putting it. It is a little strange because you're a few steps ahead of people in many ways that you already, the love was already exposed. You already knew the love and wished and hoped that he wouldn't be the way he seemed to be through his ego personality, which was unfortunately an addiction. Um, But I remember when you said to me that uh, you were bringing your, your parents over to live with you, I wondered how that would happen. How many years did they live with you? Oh, they lived with us, huh? I think it was maybe, maybe. 10 years or so. 10 years in your house. And how beautifully you took care of the two of them was a lesson to me and those around you, your daughter, I'm sure, and uh, everybody who knew you well, to see what a difficult man he was and how lovingly you treated him. Um, That's forgiveness. It says forgiveness, the course mentioned someplace, and I don't have the quote in my mind, so please forgive me, those of you who want the quote, I'll get it, you ask. Forgiveness silently stands by and does nothing. It waits for your invitation. And it seems to me that that is a very good example of it. it was always standing by silently, and the invitation was there. So finally, you could say you only loved him. Right. It It took... Many after after he died, I think I I just ignored the fact, not ignored the fact. I tried to put aside the fact that I didn't think of him totally of just of love. When I would think about him, it the the, the anger would, would kind of surface more than the love, and that's when I realized that I needed to work at it, and it. Took a lot of, lot of thought and letting go, you know, um, and remembering the good parts, and they overtook any bad parts. So uh, it's. Zephyr used to call that celestial remembering. I like that, or celestial forgetting. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) In other words, you're letting the higher help you do it. And that's the most important thing of all, because you couldn't do it yourself and you let it happen. You let it happen with you. You were willing to. You certainly were very much present. Only sometimes the final steps is very hard to take. And all you have to do is say, please help me. Right. I still slip (laughs) every now and then. I, you know, I think son of a bitch, but then I realize that that is behind me and it's, it's, it almost becomes laughable because the, you remember the anger with, with some, some joy. I mean, which is a strange way of putting it, but you can't push it away completely, 
but you can look at it with a little bit of laughter. Matthew, what yes. do you think as a sum up of what we have been enjoying here with Ronnie? I was wondering, because you heard me, Mike, I was giggling in the background here and there because Ronnie's getting asked to do things that are extremely technically challenging and daunting, uh, seemingly out of the blue. And then you just find yourself saying, yes, like, will you, will you take on this huge endeavor? Yes, I'll do that. And it's like, or did you find yourself saying like, why did I say yes to that? Or did you feel like a current behind you? Like, this is something I'm supposed to say yes to. I, I just thought, I kind of thought, what have you committed to? Because I had no idea what the first steps would be. I mean, um, but then it became a challenge. You know, how do you, how do you renumber the, the sentences? How do you? I mean, paragraphs were easy. Sentences were the problem. Um, but I think the challenge is, is the technical challenge of, of needing to figure something out. Um, that, that is what, um, what I thought of more. And I didn't realize it was going to take seven years. Right? <laughs> um, you asked my when I first made that commitment to Ken, I think part of me was wasn't angry. It was I I was just stunned. I was I was kind of didn't know where to begin. You know, not only not only the numbering, but then the concordance on in the almost in the same breath, Ken had said both those things. So it was. Um, it was a feeling of where do I go now? Yeah. And there was a teaching involved that you had no idea of. Right. If you were to tell someone today, for instance, or someone happens to be listening to this podcast, that Ken taught you privately for seven years. Yeah. That's, that's right. We spent many, many hours um, up in Roscoe. Uh, Ivor and I would drive up. Ivor would go and do whatever he he would do, and Ken and I would sit in a room and we we talk. So that was that was a gift in itself. Yeah. So. Well, looking back on it, as the time seems to be for me now, and sooner or later it's going to get to be a time for you. <laughs> it's it's so full of wonder, yeah, and so full of awe that these incredible opportunities presented themselves to us that we were somehow or other aware enough to take them on and to follow them must have meant that there was something in us or built in us that uh, had made a promise. I could only think that it was a continuation of I know not what and can't explain it, but I sure do hope it continues. Right. right. It has continued. Right. What a, what a beautiful story, Ronnie. You're kind of assembling all of these analog elements from the old world 
and taking them over a bridge to this new digital world that none of us really know how big it would become and how important. And now we can search for A Course in Miracles online and find the exact passage. And none of us even think about how it got there or how it was assembled or how this concordance happened. But Thank you for your part in that. It really became clear that uh, you know we we can look at it and see twenty twenty hindsight now. But I, I could definitely imagine that not being clear back then. Right. I like to take it into the future and think that sometime in the way way in the future, people are going to be looking back on this time, and this is going to be the beginning of whatever is happening then. So I mean. It's almost like the journey has just begun. It, it continues and it's going to continue way into the future. Who knows what technology is going to come that's going to make technology as we know today seem to be obsolete. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, um, the course will continue. And if the forgiveness is at the heart of it. That's yeah. right. Who knows what can change? Our minds... Well, Ronnie, one thing you you had mentioned to Judy and I before is that uh, Wit said something to you once that uh, he had a message for you. Maybe you could share that story before we can close. Right. Well, the very f- I had not met Judy yet. Wit had just come into our lives thanks thanks to another Whitson who introduced Ivor and Wit um, to each other. And Whit came to visit us. We, we were living in Tarrytown on the East Coast, and Whit came from California. And first time I met him, he, was, he came to stay in our house. And we went out for dinner. And we had a very nice, we were eating away, and then suddenly Whit looked at Ivor and I, and he said, I, I bring you a message from Jesus. And that's all he said. He didn't follow up with any explanation. Ivor and I didn't ask him. We didn't say, what do you mean? We just kept on eating as though nothing had happened. And it was after Whit left um, the next day, I said to Ivor, what did he mean? And we kind of shrugged our shoulders and, and had no idea. And then a few days later, not a few days later, maybe a couple of weeks later, three books arrived in the mail, three big blue blue books. Witt had sent us um, what was then the three-book Course in Miracles. No explanation, no, 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 no message. They just arrived in the mail, and I looked at them, put them on the, the bookshelf, and then looked through them, and I mean, started trying to read and couldn't get into it. And then a number of years later, at one of the Centrelink meetings, which we had in Tiburon, I was lucky enough to be sitting next to Bill Thetford. And we went, it was a breakfast. And I, I said to him, I, I have, the, the, I have the, the, the book on my, my bookshelf. But I have no idea. I don't know how to, how I can get into reading it. And he said, well, just open the, the workbook and start at the beginning. 
that was his only answer. So those are two stories, but they were joined and they join everything else that followed. That's good, good. I'm so glad you shared that. Yeah. Well, Judy, do you have any, any thoughts before we close? I think we have covered so much here, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get some questions. And if there are a few questions, Ronnie, would you be willing to answer them? I'd love to, Judy. All right. Okay. So anyone who wants to write to Ronnie and care of us, it would be Miracle Voices, Ronnie Whitson. Is that correct, Matt? You can just go to miraclevoices.org and there's a contact tab there and just fill out the form and we'll make sure that Ronnie gets that. Certainly will. Well, it's been delightful being with the two of you and um, I can't imagine how it could be more so. So thank you so much, ever so much. Yes, Ronnie, thank you for your miracle voice. And as always, Judy, thank you. And, and thank you, Matt and Judy, for being Thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Miracle Voices by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying these conversations, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, please visit us at miraclevoices.org and join our newsletter so we can stay connected. Until the next podcast, I want to leave you with my favorite course quote, when you want only love, you will see nothing else. Nothing else.